0: Welcome to the
1: Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha, And I'm Glenn McDorman, And we are back with our coverage of Chapter 2 of Peace. This is going to be Part 4, in which we are discussing pages 88 to 102 in the Orb 2012 edition of this book. Before we begin, though, we want to continue our tour of the network for those of you who might be new to us by talking about another show. This is Atos, which is really our our second flagship show at this point. And this is a a solo show that I do where uh, rather than spending an entire year and a half reading a single novel, I actually read a complete novel in just one month, and then even talk about it in just one episode. In fact, an episode that is bite-sized and single commute length. So totally breaking the MO of everything else we do on the network. And all of the books that I cover there are speculative fiction, uh, speculative fiction very broadly conceived. I've done episodes running the gamut from medical science fiction to space exploration, done urban fantasy, high fantasy, done a ton of weird fiction and supernatural horror as well. And I do say that it's... It's a solo show and and that the episodes are short, but this show actually has really taken off. And so I've nearly doubled the amount of episodes that I'm supposed to be doing on ATAS because... We keep getting commissions for that show, and a lot of these are longer shows that I have done with other hosts from the network, uh, including several with Brandon. Probably the biggest one of those that we've we've done like that is uh, literally five hours on Starship Troopers, <laughs> which is a, a commission we received from one of our longtime listeners to this show. Uh, it was a super fun thing to, to do. Yeah, that
0: that was great. I mean, that was a lot of time, a lot longer than I think either of us thought we'd be uh, talking about Starship Troopers for. But what a what a pleasure that was. I, I really love Etas. I love the the format of the show. Uh, the Great kind of review strategy that you have for. It. I've loved guesting on it because I've been able to read some really cool books that I otherwise wouldn't have been exposed to. Uh, so th- that's been awesome. So I really encourage our listeners of the Gene Wolf Literary Podcast to listen to Etas, especially to get access to some authors that Wolf knew or you know had an impact on or they impacted him like Ursula Le Guin and Kate Wilhelm and uh you know novels like A Canticle for Leibowitz so certainly recommend this show and I hope you'll check it out if you're listening to this and if you haven't reviewed Gene Wolfe literary podcast or any of the shows that you listen to on the network that's something you can do to really help us out if you can't support us on Patreon so just another reminder to to make sure to get your reviews of our shows on the network out there when we last left off in peace, we were reading Weir's allergy, I think is how we read it, of his aunt Olivia, how maybe he didn't recognize what she was fully until it was too late. And so we're going to pick up this section with more about Olivia's suitors. We're still in a chapter called Olivia. So we've got quite a lot ahead of us still to come.
1: Yeah, I mean, we're not even halfway through this chapter at this point. And this section, also pretty short. We really are taking our time with this chapter. But this episode is mostly going to be about the affair of the Chinese egg, though we are not going to get the whole affair this time. At any rate, what we are covering today starts with a short section on a dream. But even before we get into that, I want to call attention to the first line of this section, which is... I wrote last night, before I went to sleep, about my Aunt Olivia's painting and her scrapbook, things I saw when I was only a boy. And we have thought before about the materiality of this story, whether it actually exists as an artifact in the world of the story. And I'm pretty sure that this is the first indication that, yes, it does, that what we are reading is not Weir's stream of consciousness, but is in fact something that he is writing down. And I wanted to make sure that we call attention to that.
0: Yeah, it's a fair point. At least Weir believes that he's creating a real artifact, that he's spending (laughs) his time writing things down, that he's sleeping and waking and eating, that he's putting the pen down and picking it back up. I mean, this kind of shows up again, this image of the time between when the pen is put down and when it's, it's picked back up to write. But really this scene here lends credence to the idea that Weir may not actually be Going in a material sense to Dr. Van Ness's, that that whole visit, which kind of has structured the novel so far, is just in his head, that this is a, a, a kind of a memory practice that he has. Again, in this section, though, in this brief section, we have this notion that Weir is really just staying in one room of his house which he now thinks of as the edge of the house. And that's where he eats and drinks and sleeps and writes. So it's just kind of weird. Like he's trapped in this some um, small space. So we'll see him travel around the house a little bit in, in this chapter as we continue our coverage.
1: I think even I said last episode or, or maybe the episode before that, that we don't really get a lot in this chapter that's going to harken back to the, the argument that you and I have started about whether or not he's you know astral projecting or time traveling or something like that, <laughs> or these are just memories. But I think that this passage, I think you know, we'll probably want to do a check in on that in the discussion episode for this chapter, even though there won't be a whole lot to say Because I do think that this indication that this is a story that's being written down is information that's going to help us, I think, reread those passages in chapter one. And then especially if we get more of that sort of thing going on in chapters three, four, and five, but that is all getting ahead of ourselves here. So let's get to this dream. There's a wall. It's about 10 foot high. It's it's made of stone. It's uh, plastered with stucco that is falling off and we're climbs over it. And he actually has no idea what was on the side where he began, but the dream really is about what he finds on the other side. And this is a a picturesque landscape that was beautiful, but not natural. The trees and the stones and the water had all been arranged in what he calls orderly disorder and symmetrical unbalance, which is, a, this is two great phrases there to describe this. And the whole thing feels like an enclosure or a sanctuary to him. And at this point, then he he walks over some hills and he finds a dried up riverbed. There's a footbridge and under the bridge is a troll. But you know, it's not a real troll. It's just some earthenware. <laughs> you know, It's a sculpture, <laughs> essentially. So just having a bit of fun at us there. But at this point, Weir becomes aware of himself and realizes that he's 25 again, and also that he doesn't want to wake up. He doesn't want to go back to being old, though he's not even sure how old he actually is in the Waken world. He just knows he doesn't want to go back to that. But then as he's walking, it grows darker and colder, and there's a wind. He sees something bright and colorful blowing in this wind, and he chases it. And when he catches it, he sees that it is a broken paper lantern. And that's the end of the dream. We're going to have to have a whole section in our discussion of this chapter that focuses
0: closely on the symbolism that is present in this chapter. There's just no way around it at this point. Like, what is this sanctuary is kind of the first question that comes to mind. And you did a great job, Glenn, of pointing out this orderly disorder, this bit that nature can't quite do what people can in arranging its beauty for people. And this is another image of stewardship, I think, that we have in this book so far. But, you know, the sanctuary is explicitly a place where memory and imagination seem to overlap. There's the presence of the dead bird, and we've also seen birds associated with olivia and we've just had an elegy about her uh, a troll you know earthenware these images or symbols that perhaps connect to professor peacock in some way still that you know there's the reference to color here which we saw in the last section olivia's scrapbook as we went through it it was an explosion of color like a parrot which we have The color here that feels like it's calling to mind those images. There's the paper lantern and other kind of Chinese cultural symbols. So all of this feels very Olivia specific, but then we're returns to this time that he maybe idealized for his youthful vigor. The thing, though, is that all these images could be associated with things and people we haven't met or seen yet either. So (laughs) there's really a lot to think about, though I, I will say on an emotional level, I immediately relate to the idea of having a dream of a different time, or maybe you've experienced this too, of a different timeline entirely that feels so right that waking up feels like you're coming into a dream rather than out of one. And that's just a, a hell of a feeling. And I think Wolf captures that fairly well here as well.
1: Oh, yeah. that I mean, what a crazy feeling that is. I'm sure almost everyone has had at least you know a handful of experiences like that, where the dream seems more real than the real life, or at least Real enough that you're kind of confused when you wake up and discover that you're, you know, in a, a time or a place or even a body that you kind of weren't expecting to to find. And yeah, you know, what a disorienting feeling that is. And Wolf certainly captures that. I, I do think that the imagery here, the landscape, especially beyond the the sanctuary, right when he goes towards these these hills and finds the dried up riverbed, that the landscape as he's describing it there feels very much like the. Description, the, those kind of apocalyptic vision that we got in the elegy for Olivia that we ended with last time. And so, you know, like if that's what he's thinking about, and then he lays down his pen and goes to sleep, that, hey, that's going to show up in his dream. And so that's an interesting way to, I think, pair those up, but to think about the kind of, you know, veracity of this information about him actually writing things down and, you know, going to sleep and, you know, being uh, alive, which is a question I think that we're going to have at some point. But even if we don't connect it to that, that the imagery here seems apocalyptic to me and it does seem to harken back to some of the ideas that we got on the the outing to uh, Eagle Rock with the professor this because this this idea of this being this sort of dried up riverbed and these hills and there's nobody there and there's just this human artifact you know just kind of discarded uh, it feels kind of uh, you know apocalyptic it feels far future it feels as if he has traveled to a future in which humanity has gone extinct and there are just some some artifacts blowing around in the the wind but like the natural environment itself is not even uh, in good shape at this point.
0: Well, it even harkens back to his past in, in a sense. It's both kind of futuristic and relevant to his conversation that he had with Hannah in chapter one, who talked about Sugar Creek Mill and the dried bed and how that whole area is kind of overgrown. This place that can only be accessed in people's memories that nature has kind of reclaimed in the, in the physical world.
1: All right, well, we get another short section now, and this is a description of McAfee's department store. Olivia had to go every day for a two-week period in order to check on the progress of her booth. You know, she was also spending some time with McAfee himself, right? They are dating. And there was not anything for Weir to do at the store. He didn't really need to help Olivia in any way. And so he was totally free to just wander off, to just wander around in this department store. And the best thing about this was that the offices were on the same floor as the toys. And that's mostly what Weir remembers. He was building up a pretty good collection of toy soldiers that he arranged into serious business battles. And we can even recall his wish for a dollhouse to use for you a sort of tower defense scenario. And the soldiers that he has, also the soldiers that are available here in the store, are a real hodgepodge. There's contemporary soldiers with gas grenades, and there's Artillery, so all things that called to mind, right, the First World War. But there are also cavalry figures and Indians. And Weir uses all of these in his army, right? It's a totally anachronic army. All of these types of people can be soldiers in his battles. But he also describes this time as the age of the chemistry set. He had a small one at this time, but he wanted. A bigger set, a more robust set, and We comments on what these sets were made of, which is metal and glass and and wood, and the wood really jumped out to me in this description because of course, that would be for us, right in our world today, there wouldn't be anything wood in there. It would be plastic or, or silicone, and that was also true when Wolf wrote this as well, and Weir even remembers the the smell of new pine. Uh, there's a digression here as well where he actually wonders if. Maybe he poisoned himself with his chemistry set and and actually died as a child, but we don't dwell on that at all in this passage. It's just really there as this kind of throwaway line that's, I think, all too easy to skip over because he immediately goes on to talking about the weapons that were here in the the toy section of the department store. There's wooden swords, rubber daggers, cork guns, water guns, and, and also baseball bats and coin banks. And finally, Weird gives us a picture of the store as uh, you know a real place, a kind of zoomed out view of the interior of the store. It was becoming midsummer at this point, and therefore it's Getting really hot. And so he really appreciated the ceiling fans that kept the store cool. And he also remembers the pneumatic tubes that lined the store. These were used to carry containers that would just like whiz through them. And these would have, you know, receipts or like rolls of coins, right? That would go from the cash register to some sort of central office in the store and and vice versa. And this whole section here, really, the sort of tour of McAfee's department store, it feels like an ode to a material culture that just no longer exists. It feels like another allergy of a kind. Though, ode,
0: which you know is the word you just used, is probably a better one for what we're doing <laughs> here. It certainly does feel more like an ode than an elegy. But for an ode for something that no longer exists, it's, it's a remembrance. It's a commemoration of a sort. Apart from chemistry, the chemistry set here, the, that is tied up with death explicitly in weir 's thoughts we 're exposed to weir 's fascination with these soldiers, which you pointed out we 've seen once before these army men and While there are these soldiers, these American soldiers, no doubt, with modern weaponry, we also have, as you pointed out, the presence of these Indian scouts in full war bonnets as as Weir calls them, you know, and this Indian scout is holding a pair of crossed hunting knives we 've seen. The presence of first peoples or indigenous peoples to North America, time and again in this novel. And I still don't quite know what Wolf is doing by threading that imagery throughout the novel. But what really fascinated me was this the way, you know, the cultural representation works here of how, even in the world of these toys, the Indians are represented as having, you know, a different kit for war than some of the army men who lob gas grenades. You know, it could be a French and Indian War sort of playset. We don't know, but there's also uh, an explicit monetary valuation that's tied to the representation of these types of soldiers: the Indian scouts, grenadiers, snipers, etc. The wounded and the dead soldiers all cost five cents. Well, the more elaborate figures, such as the mounted cavalrymen, cost 10. And this is obviously a cost of production sort of thing. Someone on a horse has two figures melded together, so the mold is larger and things like that. But I mean, we don't really get anything else about the cost of these materials, you know, for the chemistry set or for these weapons. And it just it just sort of fascinated me that the I don't know if Wolf is doing something here with the value of lives in <laughs> war or just commenting <laughs> on, you know, the fact that the material stuff that he thinks of as an engineer that like x amount of more tin pull, poured into this mold is going to be or lead poured into this mold is going to be x amount more and can be sold for more and I don't I just don't quite know. Uh, but it's fascinating nonetheless because we just don't have the commentary about the material cost of things elsewhere.
1: Well, I think that's a great observation. And, and you know, we do invoke Wolf, the engineer, or Wolf in his capacity as a working engineer, certainly at this point, at the point of writing this novel. We invoke that a lot, but we don't really call a lot of precise attention to what type of engineering Wolf was up to, even though I think Wolf is f- fairly you know infamous among the fan community for having uh participated in the invention of the machine that makes pringles and also maybe looking like the guy on the pringles cans though you know uh the pringles can image came came first in some sense but yeah that's what wolf does right he he worked on machines that would make consumer products that's that's what he was doing for procter and gamble and so Right. When he's thinking about these toys, when he's telling us what they're made of, what what the material is, he is implicitly also thinking about how they are actually made, even if that's not showing up on the page. And that's that's probably a, a layer there kind of, you know, just behind the one that actually makes it onto the page that we should pay attention to.
0: Yeah, exactly. There's also something I want to point out here about this idea of the deadly gas, which shows up in the chemistry set. And, you know, as you pointed out, Glenn, we're wonders maybe if he killed himself in some sort of childhood gas attack incident and is now imagining his whole life and adulthood, even old age from the lens of childhood. But he also says uh, that he did not feel like a child even then at that time, that childhood was a, a condition rather than a concept. And of course, this is likely because he spent time with mostly adults, even though he says he would find a boy to go swimming with if one of, you know, another neighborhood boy was around. But, you know, this made me wonder if Weir wasn't ostracized a little bit from other children, perhaps at the behest of those children's parents due to his public involvement in Bobby Black's death. And I, you know, just to reiterate this gas attack stuff, we have the gas grenades, which he's thinking about, and then this death, potential childhood death at this chemistry set accident, where maybe he accidentally made chlorine gas or mustard gas in his chemistry set. Um, Just really interesting, complex imagery. It's almost too much to know what to do with, because we don't have the full scope of the novel yet. But this is very
1: strange to have this this here. Right. It's... Extraordinarily strange, and I think also has to be extraordinarily significant that Weir at this point is inviting us, the reader, to wonder if he's actually dead. Right? That that's what's happening here in in this section. And it's something that we're going to need to keep in mind. And I think this is another great observation about where are the kids? Where are the other kids for Weir to play with? And, you know, he does say, as you point out, that there are kids he can go swimming with, that, that he does see other people but he never writes about them he doesn't name who these kids are they're just there in the background and maybe you know he's just doing his diligence here as a writer he is writing about olivia you know his his aunt who is someone who is going to be important in his life for a little while and you know i was speculating last time that perhaps they had something of a falling out once weir himself reached uh, adulthood or perhaps late adolescence or something like that and so you know he's telling olivia's story here it's not maybe so much his story that he's telling, but still, you know, if I were going to be writing uh, a memoir about the summer that I was nine or the summer that I was eight, it would be entirely about what I was getting up to with my friends, you know, little League running bases, uh, ghosts in the graveyard, uh, so many Legos uh, exploring the the forest preserve, the rope swing across the creek, uh, vacation Bible school, right? All of that stuff. That's what I would be talking about. There would be no adults featuring in that. Memoir because they existed in my experience in the way that these kids seem to exist in Weir's experience here. And it, it seems a little odd to me.
0: Yeah, it's very strange. There's one more thing I want to point out here uh before we move on, which is this uh, brief reference or callback to the phrase brand new that we talked about in chapter 1. Something that we used to kind of build a case that Weir was making these extrapolations based on incomplete information that he was wrong about. You know, he got the definition of brand new wrong. But he sees these Louisville slugger bats and says this strange sentence that I'm going to read here. They were brand new, and so was I. Now, I have no idea what to make of this at this point. Is we're indicating that he was branded at some point, that he's fresh from some sort of fire? Is he newly made? I, I literally have no idea. It's such a weird sentence thrown in here on top of that statement about possibly having died as a kid, that it's just... I don't know what to do, and I, you know, I'm not sure if you do either, Glenn. At this point,
1: I, I don't know what to do, but it did, of course, jump out. I mean, I think he's just using the phrase pretty colloquially here. I think he's he's let go of the uh, the etymology he's fabricated, and that turns out to be totally wrong. At, you know, the very opening of this of this book, I think he's let go of that sense here, and is just using it to mean like really super duper new. You know, like really super duper new. And still though, I don't know what that would mean for a person because he's, you know, he's not a baby here in this scene. He's nine years old. So yeah. What does he really, what does he mean here? And it might be something about the, the new experience of maybe he's being ostracized by other kids because Bobby Black has just died, but he's certainly been abandoned by his parents because Bobby Black just died. So, you know, maybe that's the sort of thing that he's got in mind here, but it is a strange, it's a strange thing to say. It certainly is. And uh, we'll have to keep our eye on
0: the odd things, particularly in this section, uh, especially when we wrap up the novel.
1: Well, this situation here, this business of going to the department store every day, this lasts only two weeks, and then Olivia's booth is up, it's running, and so they only have to go back to the store then on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And Olivia acquires a handful of women who are interested in learning to decorate China, and they practice at home, and... This business here, this is providing her with some money that we're now, you know, as an adult, he, he now supposes, maybe not recognizes, but supposes that she probably needed this money more than he had actually imagined as a child But all of this, though, all of this is really just a setup for how Olivia and McAfee are going to find out about the Chinese egg that really ends up dominating this entire chapter. And this happens through one of her regular customers. This is Mrs. Bryce, who has tried to borrow this Chinese egg from her friend Emerald Lorne. And she's tried to borrow it so that she could copy some of the designs on it for the china that she's been learning to paint from Olivia. Now, we're not going to see this egg for quite a while, but Mrs. Bryce relates a bit of lore about it. And this is a good tease for us, the, the readers. There's some really excellent craft going on here with the, the way that Wolf is pacing all of this out. And the details we get are that it's a big egg and it's been very nicely decorated. And also it's from China, And it's dated Easter 1799, but Mrs. Bryce is skeptical of of that. But it has come down to Mrs. Lorne through her parents and through their parents and so on from an ancestor who had definitely been a missionary in China. Now, of course, we know that Olivia is into anything Chinese. And we've also been told that McAfee is into antiques. So they both really want to go see this egg. And McAfee immediately wants to buy it, right? Because, you know, that's how he sees the world. He's in the business of buying and selling things. But they can't just go barging out to the farm of someone they don't know, you know, like demanding to see her possessions. <laughs> we might do that today, but not okay in this this society. And so they're just left dreaming about this for a while, though they are also making plans to, to get out there to see it and how they might acquire it and so on. And there is also the question of whether they are a team trying to acquire this egg together, but jointly, or whether they are operating as individuals. So to put it another way, are they cooperating or are they competing for this egg?
0: That's Weir's real question at the end of this section as a child trying to understand the world of adults, though, if we as readers can assume that one of the suitors and the fairy tale about Olivia that we saw in the last uh, couple sections is McAfee and He's the suitor with the money bags that gets between the suitor and the princess whenever they try to embrace. Well, I don't know. Maybe we have our answer here. So, you know, so far, you know, of the two suitors that we've seen Olivia with, she's kind of built this friendly antagonism into their relationship. It's kind of endemic, it seems, to her relationship—a kind of antagonism with others. And I think that kind of suits her her character well. She keeps people a little bit at a distance and wants to be as as we said before, that kind of culture of one in this town. The Easter date is fairly important to the egg. I mean, one thing we didn't mention about the way this whole section is structured is that it's through these kind of through the grapevine intelligence reports, like the whole town kind of gets involved in this business of the <laughs> egg. But uh especially as it has come down through the family from missionaries or ostensibly Christian missionaries to China, that, that Easter date is maybe significant. The egg is said to have scenes on it that illustrate the resurrection of Christ or stories related to that resurrection, including Mary Magdalene's encounter with the risen Christ, and also perhaps some images of guards outside of Jesus's tomb. And these guards are supported to be wearing, uh, you know, Manchurian clothes. You're carrying Manchurian images. There's a sense that the women, uh, the female disciples of Christ have their feet bound and are in you know, kimonos or something along those lines. Uh, so what we have here is Christian imagery and symbolism as it is adopted by a non-Western community of people with their own modes of meaning imbued into these kind of, or folded into these other cultural symbols. Again, something like this stands in contrast to what we saw earlier in the chapter Columbus's discovery of America that connected that to Christian symbolism and God's providence and things like that as well. And In any event, I think we just cannot anymore deny the importance of symbolism in this novel. Not that we were doing that, but I think if you're a casual reader, you'd be forced to now contend with Imagery and symbolism, uh, and change your sense of how they're operating in this story. You know, we even saw that Olivia signs her artwork with an O and an olive branch as a symbol. So this concept of people as symbols and symbols as peoples, you know, metonymy in a sense, the part representing the whole is now
1: explicit in the text itself these two different images that we get of Christianity spreading outward from its its origin point in the the Holy Land in Israel or you know we might even just say in Jerusalem and getting to places pretty far afield right a whole continent away uh, across an ocean but they're presented very differently, right? The images that we had of this uh, earlier in this chapter are images of of conquest, and there are certainly warfare, right? There's something martial about that imagery, whereas here, it's actually about the appropriation of Christianity, or maybe the incorporation of Christianity into cultural expressions of, of China. So there's a real strong contrast there that I'm really glad you pointed out, and we will definitely have to take stock of that, if perhaps not necessarily at the end of this chapter. Eventually, we're going to have to do that, right? There is definitely something very important going on here about American exceptionalism. But I also really appreciate the way that you're pointing out how similar yet different at the same time, Olivia's relationship with McAfee is to her relationship with uh, the professor, with Professor Peacock, that both of them seem to be characterized by kind of combative flirting. This (laughs) is definitely, I think, you know, straight out of Twelfth Night. We've talked about that, but this just really has rom-com written all over it, except that we're just not seeing this as a rom-com because we're seeing it through the eyes of a nine-year-old who's annoyed that he has to, you know, clean the dog kennels and Can't stay at his own house. Right. So I kind of want someone to buy the movie rights to this and just make this chapter. And like, you can get rid of weird. I just want to see her. I just want to see this from like the perspective of Olivia or the perspective of her suitors. It's a rom com I would like to see.
0: Yeah. It's perfectly reasonable for a child to wonder how anything like this could lead to. Like the fairy tale love story, right, like how could these genuine antagonisms in these relationships lead to anything like people <laughs> living happily ever after it 's a, it's a, it's a good question there 's a few more things in this in this section that I want to point out. you know we get these references in this section to characters like the greens. I mean this is a great opportunity for Wolf the writer to just name people in town because it 's all these people who are involved in this quest for the egg, so to speak, so we get the greens. We saw green as a symbol of Olivia's house. They showed up in chapter one as well. And officially, in this point, we're introduced to the family of the Lorns, of which their daughter, as as we've mentioned before, is in the waiting room with Weir in chapter one. And lastly, I want to say that Weir supposes that Aunt Olivia may have needed money more than he considered, but this is hard for me to kind of imagine. I don't quite know how this can be the case if she thinks she can afford to buy the egg, which maybe she doesn't. Uh, but everyone says the egg is very expensive or will be. that The Lawrence will ask a high price for it, and it feels like Weir has a kind of blind spot here that. Especially in relation to what we saw earlier when we were looking at that passage about kind of the dignity, the greatness inherent in men and their hobbies, the way they accrue expertise without remuneration. Um, and we're blind spot is this Olivia is being remunerated for her hobbies, which isn't necessarily the goal of taking up a hobby, but She's not going to turn down the opportunity to make money. And it highlights for me, again, that tension that we saw earlier in the chapter in the way that Weir thinks about greatness, men who are experts in odd fields and whatnot. But he doesn't think greatness and remuneration go hand in hand. And so maybe he's not willing to extend Weir, I'm saying here, not Wolf. He's not willing to extend that same sense to Olivia not only because perhaps she's a woman and that passage is gendered, that could just be a style of the writing in the 1970s, but also because she's being paid for her work. And it feels like Weird just misses a lot about his aunt because he experiences her essentially through these other men and their relationship with her. And I am beginning now to think that Wolf is doing this very thoughtfully and very carefully, though we'll have to see if all of that bears out through a continued reading of the text.
1: Well, I think from Weir's perspective here, both as a a child and then also as the adult who is writing this memoir to begin with, Olivia's need for money is going to be a little bit strange, right? Because Weir comes from money. They're, They're a wealthy family. The Weirs are wealthy, but the... Money, as Weir supposes earlier anyway, it may may not be true. but I think if we can take that supposition as true, then we could we can see a little bit of Olivia's finances here. Weir is imagining that the inheritance from his grandmother went to Weir's father, who is now, you know, the paterfamilias. And so Olivia is dependent on her older brother for her money for a living because she is not getting married, right? That this is a world where in one way or another, if she wants to continue to live in the style that she grew up in, which is to say wealth, she's dependent on a man. And in this case, she's continuing to be at least somewhat dependent on her older brother and has not gotten married, in which case then she would be dependent on Uh, a man, though, you know, we're calling these men, she's dating suitors. Of course, we're is calling them suitors and um, actually never uses the word dating. That is my word that I am using (laughs) because it's the word we would use for this sort of thing today. But that it's totally possible that, you know, so she's, she's living in this house that, I suspect is owned by Weir's dad and not by her. She, certainly, she's not paying any rent. You know, I would be my guess that she's living there just fine without any paying any, any rent or anything like that. And so, in that sense, she's kind of kept. And she probably has a bit of an allowance, uh, some money that she can draw out of the bank. You know, every week or every month or something like that. But that's probably limited. And so, her independence, her ability to do things that she would like to do, extra things are dependent on her getting some cash. And so this is a great opportunity for her to, to do that. Uh, that might not necessarily qualify, you know, as a need, like, certainly not as a dire need, but it might feel like a need, you know, for Olivia at, at this moment, a need in the sense that it's something that motivates her to do something that she otherwise might not.
0: We'll see in a little bit, and, and we'll point it out when we get there, that Olivia is a great depositor to the bank, which means she 's depositing money regularly she 's also selling these dogs that she 's breeding so I mean she is just i don 't know we 'd call everything she does now a side hustle but uh, <laughs> she 's basically got her own Etsy shop and little you know dog breeding business so she 's really a remarkable woman, and it 's weird I think that has the the blind spot about her though I think as wolf, wolf is Maybe not going to any great lengths, but certainly challenging our perception of her as readers as we compare it to what Weir sees as a child and also through his reflections.
1: Yeah, that's a great observation. She she's clearly doing pretty well for herself right at these at these side hustles, which is, you know, that's awesome, good for her. Of course, also, uh, you know, this is uh this is a time when uh going to see a doctor when you didn't have health insurance didn't cost a month and a half's pay, you know, from like right. a steady middle-class job either. So, not possible today. Well, we've got one last section that we want to talk about here before we close out for the day, and so now it is time for Eleanor Bold, who is, you know, the judge's daughter. She's also the woman responsible for the elm tree that has served as the catalyst for this whole memoir, this whole book. It, it is, it is time for her, for Eleanor Bold, to enter the story, and she and Olivia are are friends, though Olivia's a little bit older than Eleanor. Weir describes Eleanor as aspiring to be like Olivia in terms of her independence and also her disregard for customs and habits that she thinks are antiquated. The death of Bobby Black, which is to say Eleanor's nephew, this has created a rift between the two families. And so it's been a while since Eleanor and Olivia have hung out. But because they're in the outer circles of all of this, it now seems to them like enough time has passed. And so They can get back to business, uh, maybe not quite as usual, but close to it. They can carry on with their friendship at this point. And so Eleanor comes over to Olivia's with news about the Chinese egg Emerald Lorne is the wife of the minister of the approved Methodist church, and Eleanor has just met her at a church picnic. Now, Eleanor is not a member of this church, but there is a young man who's courting her, whose mother is a member of that church, and so she was invited to the picnic, and normally she would not have gone to this sort of thing, but she knew that this would help Olivia get the egg, and so we can see here, right, that Eleanor clearly enjoys scheming. And we get a little bit more scheming here as well. James McAfee also is connected to Eleanor in the sense that he is friends with her father, the judge. And so he comes over so that he can play chess with the judge and also talk about Dickens and and Trollope. Uh, You know, it's too bad they didn't have, you know, recording equipment because I would listen to that (laughs) podcast. (laughs) But uh, the last time that McAfee was over there, he mentioned that he wanted to buy the egg for Olivia's birthday. But Olivia, she sees right through this. This was not something that McAfee mentioned. Like It's not something that he said casually. This is something that he wanted her to know, wanted her to find out about, because it is not true. He definitely is going to buy it for himself. And then he is going to use his possession of the egg to get Olivia to marry him. And it seems like This is a topic that has already come up. Maybe not the egg, right, in this capacity, but the topic of marriage. Seems like it has already come up between them. But at any rate, Olivia now wants to use Eleanor to convey to McAfee that she wants to buy the egg for him which also is not true, but she thinks that, you know, him hearing this at least will make him realize that she wants it for herself, genuinely wants it for herself. It's a totally false conflict, of course, right? It's also dizzying. I hope you're not lost in this explanation. (laughs) I've tried to to simplify it here, but it is dizzying. But all of this, right, all of this really matters to Olivia. And it is with this scheming that this section ends, and this is going to bring our episode to a close.
0: What really jumped out to me about this section in particular, and Eleanor Bold, is that once again, we're confronted with a a principal character of the narrative who doesn't go to church or at least a person who sees church primarily as a means to an end. So let's just take a moment now to talk about Eleanor Bold, who is this type of person. We learned in chapter one that Eleanor Bold is a woman. uh, We're here, calls her strikingly beautiful. And as a result, the whole town kind of assumes that Eleanor Bold gets around. She's got that reputation, true or not, just or unjust. And her beauty is something I think that really makes her an easy friend of Olivia's. And one even suspects here that Olivia would be taking care of her father's house if her father were still alive, the way Eleanor is reliant on her father and keeps the house for him. In any event, Eleanor acts as an agent of a kind. She's playing a role in this new town drama of the egg and the McAfee's and Olivia Weir. I mean, as I said, the whole town seems to be involved in this situation between (laughs) McAfee and Aunt Olivia. And so everybody's kind of playing these different roles. And before we really close out here, I also want to say that this dialogue is terrific. Eleanor just storms into Olivia's house with a bunch of energy and takes real pleasure in explaining her role as an agent in this whole egg affair to Olivia. And I don't really have, you know, much to say about the scheming either because it really appears as though it is what it seems to be on, on the surface. Jimmy McAfee wants to marry Olivia, but Olivia's got these other suitors who she's kind of using as an excuse to not settle down with anyone. And just to briefly return to the topic of money as well, we know that Olivia will have to draw money out of the bank. And it is this action that that is going to lead us to meet Olivia's final suitor, at least at this time in her life, in, in our next
1: episode as well. I love the emphasis you're placing on, on how much this business of the egg is really a, a communal affair at this point, because it really... You know, although I would definitely watch a rom com adaptation of this, that's something I truly, truly want. (laughs) But this actually, I think, has the potential to just be like an ongoing TV series that, you know, kind of detaches itself from the perspective of We're the Boy here, and maybe even detaches itself completely from the perspective of the We're family and is just about. Cassiansville as a kind of, you know, community drama. Certainly it could be, you know, a costume drama. We set it here in the the 1920s and we get to meet all of these characters and perhaps, you know, episode to episode, we get our character perspective switch and, you know, we can see this picnic as one thing. We get an episode that's about Olivia, you know, on different dates and that sort of thing. I'm just saying, you know, there's a lot of potential here. And I really kind of, you know, joking around a little bit, but I'd bring this up because it is not an uncommon or infrequent topic of conversation among the Wolf fandom on places like Facebook and Reddit of where's the wolf film, right? Where's the wolf on-screen adaptation? And this is it, I think. It's peace.
0: Yeah, I mean, it could at least serve uh, half a season of Gilmore Girls, I think,
1: <laughs> which well, is really what I think you're right. right. <laughs> I'm just envisioning Gilmore Girls, except it's the 1920s, which is not a bad pitch. No, it's not a bad pitch at all. But uh, now that we're imagining,
0: uh, I don't know, on Olivia's Lorelai like Gilmore or something like that, we should <laughs> probably close out our episode. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha, And
1: I'm Glenn McDorman. And um, yeah, I guess we're fan casting this now, so <laughs> please stop by the forum at Clayton pomedia.com or the Clay Double Media subreddit and let us know who you would cast in these in these roles and if you've got ideas uh, yeah we'd love to we'd love to hear your your vision of the adaptation of this and if you like science fiction books or fantasy books or horror books, and hey, obviously, you do, we really hope that you will check out the show, ATAS a Speculative Fiction Book Club podcast. Uh, we have a lot of fun over there, and I hope you'll subscribe to it as well. Uh, next time, we're going to be back to talk about pages 102 to 111 in the Orb 2012 edition. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.